You're listening to Why Talk Climate, an expert podcast series on mobilizing youth for climate action, produced and directed by BCCIC Climate Change. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to BCCIC's Why Talk Climate podcast. This episode will be our third, and this month we'll be discussing the intersectionality of climate change and COVID-19. It's been about a year since the pandemic completely changed our lives here in BC and abroad, and we wanted to reflect on the impacts of COVID-19 in our field of work. We'd like to begin by introducing ourselves. My name is Simon Sarai, and I'm a student in the Environmental Science program at Simon Fraser University. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Hope you've been well. My name is Bo Min, and I'm a Criminology and International Studies major, also from SFU. Excited to be here for our third episode of Why Talk Climate. The Why Talk Climate podcast is hosted by BCCIC Climate Change, BC's youth-led climate change division. Our aim is to engage with young adults in the general public and provide information on climate change topics in an accessible fashion for all. And now, Bowman has some introductions. Yeah, so before we dive into the topics we have for today, we would like to welcome our guest, Kayla. Kayla Stark is UNFCCC COP Delegation Coordinator at BCCIC Climate Change and a PhD student of zoology at the University of British Columbia. She is passionate about promoting dialogues on how social equity influences the outcome of conservation interventions, and she hopes to integrate youth in all decision-making spaces in working towards a world where young and future generations are respected and valued. Kayla, thanks for coming. I hope that you're as excited as I am. All right. Yeah, thank I you guess. so much for having me. Yeah, of course. We always, we've always been waiting for you to be part of our discussions, and I'm super excited for whatever um, discussions we'll be having today. All right, I guess we can dive right into it. Our first part of the discussion relates to climate action amid COVID-19. Throughout the past, climate advocacy, policy adaptations, and by large climate action has been implemented on an ongoing basis, but this may differ across different communities. Some may have the capacities and resources to implement these changes, while others may not. How can we increase the capacity of all communities to advance climate action in a post-COVID world? Should we focus on green finance, women empowerment, conservation, education, and perhaps all of the above or none of the above? Yeah, I, I think the answer to this question really depends on um, the spatial scale of the community that you're interested in. So as you mentioned, um, individuals, families, neighborhoods, cities, provinces, countries, um, NGOs, governments, corporations, all these groups have varying capacities to change their actions to address the climate crisis. Um, For example, a lower income country that has an underdeveloped energy um, and healthcare infrastructure you know, the the citizens in this country deserve to have all these things as soon as possible for their well-being, right? And in an energy economy where the cheapest option is something like coal, um, decision makers in in this hypothetical country almost can't be blamed for going with the most cost-effective option because that's what's going to bring development to the community as soon as possible. But different stakeholder groups, you know, be they um, certain groups of people or whole countries, they also have varying responsibilities to address the climate crisis um, and quantifying the distribution of those responsibilities is very hard. 
Um, so to answer your question about, um, you know, which interventions are needed to enhance everyone's capacity um, to advance climate action, I think really the question that we need to be asking is, is more so um, who should bear the burden of responsibility for addressing climate action, right? Because um, I think... Uh, you know, we need interventions that relieve the burden of responsibility from these less advantaged groups. An individual that's living paycheck to paycheck in an impoverished neighborhood um, shouldn't be expected to spend much effort addressing the climate crisis if they're struggling, right? Whereas um, a billionaire, for instance, who's living a very energy intense lifestyle, flying around in private jets, you know, they might be expected to do a little bit more with their money and time um, on climate. And likewise, if we're talking about whole countries, um, higher income countries that have have gotten there through colonialism and intense resource extraction should bear a greater responsibility to address the climate crisis than lower income countries. Um, so, you know, in terms of, um, so that's, that's the who, right? I think those who are responsible for the climate crisis should be doing more. Um, and specific actions that we need to alleviate these inequities, um, climate finance, like you mentioned, is, is, a really, is really important, actually. Um, under the Paris Agreement, richer countries are expected to contribute about $100 billion annually to um, finance um, both mitigation and adaptation to climate change and lower income income countries. So that's, that's, we need money to do it. Um, uh, also, um, investments in renewable energy technologies and just generally actions that will decarbonize our economy. Typically, richer countries, as well as corporations that um, are heavy polluters, they have more power to change the climate crisis. And if these big and powerful actors take these bold actions, then that al allows less advantaged people or communities to live greenly, right? The burden of responsibility shouldn't fall on them. It's, it's the, the important actors taking actions to allow these communities to, to live more climate-friendly lives. Yeah, thanks, Kayla. Um, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I think I've learned, well, about the Paris Agreement um, and the agreements that's, that entails from that agreement. It really sometimes makes me question if it is possible uh, for them, for the disadvantaged groups and countries to uh, abide to that, when in fact, um, those who are more powerful, like the countries that have the capacities and the resources to implement those changes, um, should bear more burden because they can um, do so. So I agree with a lot of what you said, pretty much all of what you said. Um, and I think it's especially important to note from this discussion that even if we all emphasize how important climate action is and how much we should advocate for it. Not everyone has the capacity and the resources to operationalize um, these goals and values. You know, especially amid COVID-19 where there's even less capacity to prioritize climate action for the most vulnerable communities because health comes first and all the conflicts that they're in within those communities, because a lot of these um, communities have internal conflicts during these times, um, that becomes less important from their perspective. So how can we empower these communities um, to be able to tackle the climate effects that they will experience the most? These are the discussions that we will need as we move on uh, from this time and onwards. So I think as we would all agree, climate rhetoric is not enough, making meaning out of the rhetoric to make it operationalizable 
and to empower these communities so that they can tackle these issues should be part of the historic and holistic approach that we take in climate action. And hopefully all the active activists, decision makers and lobbyists and the work you do um, like advocacy and research would help create that empowerment. Okay, so moving on, we have a question that relates to the disproportionate effects of COVID-19 and climate change. COVID-19 has brought disproportionate effects across different communities, among which vulnerable communities have been negatively impacted the most. In a similar way, we know that climate change also has disproportionate impacts across different communities. So what do you think are the lessons that can be taken away from this global health crisis around tackling the climate crisis, while most importantly, leaving no one behind? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so first of all, I think, I don't necessarily think the pandemic is a textbook example of leaving no one behind. Um, I think rather it's, it's been a revealing event. It's, it's revealed, it's made worse a lot of the inequities in our society and it's sort of like put them on display for the world to show. Um, that said, I think one lesson that that can be one good good lesson that can be transferred over to tackling the climate crisis is just the speed of the response and the global cooperation around vaccines and the closure of borders and maintaining trade and sending PPE across borders and things like that. All those things happened so quickly, and they presumably took a great amount of cooperation among. Um, individuals in, in different governments. Um, and if, you know, if only that sense of urgency could be translated to, to like ending fossil fuels and, and making sure that we're pushing for a just transition to a green economy. Um, I, yeah, just, it, it, it astounds me that a lot of um, decision makers think that that speed of response is not possible in the climate sphere, where really it's, it's not a matter of what's of, of capacity, it's it's a matter of political will. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think as we come out of this pandemic, that's something that a lot of climate uh, people working in climate advocacy should should hold on to and sort of stick to their governments is, hey, like we we know that you're able to mobilize funds and and send relief to to citizens and businesses and populations really quickly if you want to. Um, why aren't you doing this for the climate crisis? Yeah, I completely agree with you again. I think I've seen a lot of individuals and politicians point out that if we can globalize efforts for COVID-19, why can't we do that, like the same thing for climate action to the same degree, um, especially since climate change should be treated as an emergency situation as well, um, to the same degree. And even so, you know, a lot of people don't treat it the same way. And I think a lot of others question that level of and degree of efforts and globalized efforts. A huge part of the climate crisis is that the actions we take relating to climate change means a lot and even a lot more for vulnerable communities who get impacted the most because they get the harm the most from the climate change effects. You know, there's a reason why we say do your part it's because we are active partisans. We are actively part of the problem and the solutions we create. 
So we can't say that the climate crisis is separate from our lives. We can't other it. This problem is shared, and if it brings disproportionate effects across communities, this weighs into the choices we make about climate action that would impact others more heavily. So I think capacity building, advocacy, and et cetera, all the other work surrounding climate action would be crucial in understanding what our role is in implementing these changes for not just ourselves, but for others. All right, moving on, we'd like to talk about how climate negotiations have changed under COVID-19. As we know, Kayla is a part of BCCIC Climate Change. She's the program advisor for multilateral affairs, which gives her a really unique position as a youth leader at climate negotiations. So a few questions about climate negotiations and how they're changing during the time of COVID-19. So the pandemic has dramatically changed our world and everyday lives. How has the pandemic impacted the planning and occurrence of international climate conferences? And in what ways has COVID-19 changed the accessibility of such important global discussions for individuals and groups? Yeah, so um, it's the short answer is that COVID-19 has delayed very important negotiations that are going to get us on track to meeting the Paris Agreement goals, which for those who aren't familiar are um, keeping climate change or global warming at 1.5 degrees pre-industrial levels. Um, So COP26, the 26th climate conference, essentially, um, it was scheduled to happen in Glasgow in December of last year, 2020. And obviously it got delayed because it's not safe to gather in such huge numbers. So it, it um, it was put off for an entire year and it's scheduled to happen this year at around the same time. Um, The pandemic has had an interesting impact on the accessibility of these UN climate negotiations because so the the COP26 conference that was supposed to happen last year got replaced by a virtual climate ambition summit. So it was sort of um, devoid of any real substantial negotiations, but a lot of world leaders sort of submitted um, videos of themselves um, saying inspiring words about where their countries were at in terms of implementing their commitments to the Paris Agreement. Um, And I think pretty much anyone was allowed to register for that. So that was kind of nice for accessibility. Um, So long as one had decent internet, they could watch these discussions. Um, But again, that's, that's that's participation, but it's not necessarily meaningful inclusion in Um, climate decision making, right? And so I think that second bit that the meaningful inclusion during COVID times is kind of yet to be seen. Um, My fear is that um, when COP26 does happen this year, it'll take on either a virtual or a hybrid format or a limited capacity format where only government negotiators are allowed to go because they need to go because negotiations need to happen. Um, But then other other aspects of civil society who aren't government decision makers are not allowed to go because there just isn't enough space and it's not safe for several thousand people to be in a conference center sort of thing. Um, And so that's something that we are watching very closely um, as the climate delegation and trying to um, advocate for ways that um, civil society and non-government actors can still meaningfully contribute to the Um, negotiations process, um, even if the conference has to take on a virtual format. I think that's a really important thing to remember is that in prior years before the pandemic was ever a thing, um, you would hear about these climate negotiations and you would just, you know, see the non-governmental organizations and individuals that got to attend and you recognize as a young person or a student 
that that's really important to have because a lot of the time um, you don't have a voice about what's happening in your city or your province or your country. So having organizations that go and advocate on behalf of environmental justice groups or youth groups is really important. So it'll be interesting to see how they set that up because it is it is tough to juggle a pandemic and the health of several thousand people, like you mentioned, with creating an equally accessible uh, environment where everyone's voices are actually taken into consideration. I do have another question for you. It's also about climate negotiations. As a follow-up, negotiations are changing, but you recently published a report on the selection process for youth delegations. How can organizations across Canada and around the world use these guidelines to increase the inclusion of youth at such high-profile climate discussions during and after COVID-19? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll preface my answer by saying that I was not personally involved with the publication and writing of the report, but I was interviewed for it um, in my capacity as the UNFCCC delegation coordinator at BCCIC Climate. Um, yeah, so so as I mentioned, um, there's this fear that youth won't be allowed um, uh, during the pandemic, I should specify, um, that they, they won't be allowed to be part of the negotiation processes. Um, and this is partially because the vast majority of youth who attend these conferences go with NGOs. They, they don't go with the government delegations. Um, it's almost as though the burden of responsibility falls on NGOs to support youth at these conferences because the government, the government won't take them on. Um, and this is unfair to NGOs also because they're at capacity logistically and financially. So I think what truly needs to happen during the pandemic and also after the pandemic, you know, we've been calling for this for years, is that um, governments really need to get serious about including youth on their official delegations, um, not just as a tokenistic gesture, but actually including them on their team and um, allowing them some agency in those negotiations rooms when when the draft when texts are being drafted, um, sort of thing. Um, this so this this is um, giving youth a spot on official de government delegations and also financing them right because we also don't want to fall into um, the equity trap of only privileged youth um, getting to go on these delegations because they've had more opportunities in life or because they are um, financially better off. So these are all things that should be considered. Um, I will say that some governments have a pretty decent model for this. Um, for instance, Norway has a dedicated youth representative on its government delegation. Um, and they're, they're deeply involved with, um, I guess, the government delegation team's strategy um, strategy forming, which is really cool. Um, and similarly, the French government delegation has a mentorship model where um, youth shadow government delegates, and apparently they stay at the same hotel and have breakfast together. So, you know, it's it doesn't seem like much, but um, when, when youth are included in this way and treated like equals, it makes such a difference. Um, and I think it really changes the, the, the atmosphere of, of the decision-making um, process, you know. So, yeah, yeah, these these are these apply during COVID, but they're they're things that we are going to continue to push for um, even after the pandemic's over. I was just going to say, I agree. I think that's a really cool idea that France and Norway have programs like that, because I think it would be really interesting to see it here in Canada. I know so many students and young adults are so interested in 
stepping up and making their voices heard and just wanting to help in any way. Like even at BCCIC, we have researchers, we have communications liaisons, we have all these people who have the capacity to learn and to help and to just try and do what they can and do their own part to help the the climate change movement. And I think that giving youth an equal opportunity and an an accessible opportunity to be a part of these negotiations really empowers them and it it sets them up to help us succeed in our future because the young people are they're the people that will be leading the negotiations in the future like it's the next generation so I think it would be really interesting to see a program like that here in Canada. Yeah I'll just quickly follow up with that with sort of a plug for our UNFCCC delegation at BCCIC Climate, but you sort of touched on, um, yeah, youth, youth being like future leaders. And that's that's the, the great value in these youth delegation programs, whether it's an all youth delegation or just one youth spot on a delegation, but it really exposes younger people to the machine that is climate diplomacy and climate policy. Um, And it reveals to them that, um, you know, obviously governments have the greatest power in these decision making processes, but they're not the only actors like at the conference, there are NGOs who are producing research and calling meetings behind closed doors to lobby for certain um, policies to be included. Um, there, there are also corporations at these places, um, folks representing um, academia and the research world. Um, and so it, it ex- you know, it's, it's not, I mean, it teaches youth um, how interma- international environmental diplomacy works, but it also um, shows them different paths that they could take. And depending on your interests and your expertise and your strengths, um, you can choose to choose these different paths and still play a very important role in, in as, as I called earlier, the machinery that is um, climate policy. I first started joining um, organizations lobbying for activism against climate change. I had no idea. And I still don't really have a complete idea of what it's like um, to work in climate diplomacy. I'm always learning. So I think it is really cool and really important for youth to get that exposure. Thank you so much, Kayla, for taking some time out of your day to have this discussion with us. As usual, we'd like to thank our team at BCCIC Climate Change for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be coming out towards the end of April. For news on Kayla's work at BCCIC and more, give us a follow on Twitter and our brand new Instagram, where we also discuss the SDGs and research on what we are doing locally to fight against climate change. Our handle is at BCCIC Climate. Thanks again, Kayla, for joining us today. Lastly, before we leave, we'd like to end our episode with your final remarks on climate action amid COVID-19. What advice would you give youth members within and beyond our communities relating to climate action amid the COVID-19 pandemic? I guess I think my best piece of advice would be to stay inspired um, and to, to keep hopeful. Climate, um, climate action and climate advocacy those are very exhausting lines of work and it's really easy to feel hopeless um, and to feel as though you as an individual are not contributing anything to the greater movement and the improvement of the climate crisis. And so just finding what brings you joy and and ways um, to remind yourself of, of why you're doing this work, I think is the best thing that you can do for yourself because you know, that that will make that will contribute to your mental wellness. 
Um, but also like the movement needs you, like it, it needs all of us. We're all just drops in the sea. Um, and so, you know, no matter how small you think your role is, it's, it is absolutely necessary. We really need everyone on board to transforming our society and, and economy um, towards um, carbon neutral. I can totally relate to that. And hopefully me, Simran, and all the youth members out there listening to this episode can take ownership of how we feel and our own learning and stay hopeful about the climate action we will collectively create in the coming years. Have a lovely rest of the week, everyone, and see you again soon.